You're listening to Meet the RIA. In this special podcast edition of the show, you'll get expert insights from some of the top registered investment advisors in the country. Here's your host, Jenna Dagenhart, and today's special guest, David Bonson, Managing Partner and Chief Investment Officer at the Bonson Group. This podcast was recorded in September of 2019. David, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So David, obviously a lot on the horizon right now, but I want to start with what you're hearing from your clients. What are their main concerns? You know, all clients fundamentally, their main concern is just the successful achievement of their goals. So it's always a long-term issue, but then the short-term things that come up along the way. And you just listed the bulk of them. People in the short term have concerns around headline risk. So the Fed, trade war, obviously the political world always presents things to clients because they're usually engaged in it. So they wonder how that's going to affect their portfolio. But most of the time it comes down to various fears of transient market volatility. Our job is to keep them focused on the long-term goals. And uh, obviously a lot of volatility in the short term here with these Saudi oil attacks cutting production there by 50%. Are there any long-term consequences that you're particularly concerned about? No, there's not. And as a matter of fact, I, I think even the volatility has been remarkably subdued. I mean, equity markets did not react that much. Oil prices went up 10%. That sounds like a big number, except for at $60 oil. It's where we were in July. It's where we were in May. So you really haven't had a very significant move even in oil markets. And again, that's because markets are smart enough to see this as a short-term supply disruption. What moves oil prices longer term is when there's demand erosion. We're having no such effect right now. No signs of demand erosion with oil markets. No sign of demand erosion with oil markets and no sign of demand erosion coming from even the global economic weakening. We are seeing very weak economies in Europe, in parts of Asia. We're not seeing that affect the demand for energy around the world. And turning to fixed income markets, I want to talk about negative yielding debt. We're seeing trillions of dollars of it out there, more than $15 trillion. So what's the underlying root of this, in your opinion? Um, Well, I will say, with all humility, this isn't my opinion. This is a fact. There is only one thing causing negative yielding debt, and that is central banks around the world run amok. They're printing more and more with money that doesn't exist. They're buying bonds with money that doesn't exist to purposely suppress the cost of debt to enable the borrowing and spending binge of countries. So it is the excessive spending in Europe, Japan, and of course the United States hasn't got to negative debt, but we have this very, very low interest rate environment since the financial crisis. All of that stems from only one thing, and that is excessive government indebtedness. It's not a temporary thing, it's here to stay. What is new, when you bring up the negative yields, is the monetary policy experimentation. The central banks of the world have decided they can afford to be very creative. They feel like zero interest rates out of the financial crisis, quantitative easing. They feel like these things worked, so they're trying new things. Negative yields, I'm sad to say, just seem to be the latest in their sort of toolbox of experimentation. Do you think that they could be headed to the United States? We just had the president tweet that the Fed should slash interest rates to zero or less. So 
Could we be heading there too? Well, I really, really hope not. And of course, the tweet I don't take very seriously. I, 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 I wish that our Fed uh, would come out and say as a policy position, we will not pursue a negative yield uh, environment. Both former Chairwoman Yellen and former Chairman Bernanke have said, no, we don't see, think that will happen. But there's never been an emphatic denial, a sort of resolve that negative yields is not something we're willing to do in the United States. Uh, there needs to be. I think our central bank needs to get out and say, we will not go there. Do you think this is spooking markets in any way, that they haven't come out and said that? Um, let me put it this way. I think that if they were to do it, it would go a long way to calming markets. That might be a little, a little different than saying it's actually spooking markets. I think that the overall anxiety in markets stem from a kind of combination of events, so it's hard to identify just one. I think that the negative yields around the world are putting a lot of people a lot of dollars have to come to the United States and buy our debt because they want to get some positive carry. So it pushed our yields down. You remember in August, the 10-year was well below 1.5%. 30-year went below 2%. Those yields have backed up a bit since. But the point is, is that uh, even though we're not going negative, it's put a lot of downward pressure on yields. That has no chance of changing in any, in any significant way anytime soon. David, you mentioned the yield curve. Recession fears seem to be alive and well when the yield curve inverted, and now stocks are chasing record highs. What do you make of all this, and should investors still be afraid about the yield curve inversion? Well, I think that it's hard to not look at the yield curve as a concern a month ago when there was so much chatter around the idea, most of it uninformed chatter, about what the real relationship between the yield curve and a recession is. There have been a lot of times recently where a negative, uh, inverted yield curve ended up happening before we had a recession. But not every time the yield curve inverted did we go in recession. And we've had recessions where the yield curve had never inverted. So I think the cause and effect there was very misunderstood. And frankly, um, this is different. The, the causation of this inverted yield curve has very plausible explanations outside of weakening economic demand. That's not to say we're not going to recession, because we certainly will at some point in time. I think, honestly, you'll find that most of the chatter that was saying, oh, this inverted yield curve means the economy is weakening, most of it was politically driven. I think there are certainly a lot of people who'd like us to be going into recession in anticipation of an election, just as I'm sure a lot of Republicans would have liked the economy to be weak in 2012. Certainly, there's plenty that would like it to be weak in 2020 as President Trump faces re-election. My own belief is that the biggest fear to economic health is the trade war. The inverted yield curve is not related to that. It's related to the issue we talked about a moment ago of, in, of, of global yields being negative, forcing a lot of demand and buying pressure in United States treasuries. Uh, the Fed has been probably too tight on the short end of the curve relative to that phenomena. So they're going to end up cutting rates at least once, if not twice more, by the end of the year. And I think you're going to have a very flat yield curve for quite some time. Where do you see the Fed heading in 2020? It's a good question, because in 2016, we started off the beginning of the year with the Fed telling you in their own dot plots they were going to raise rates four times that year. They chickened out of all of them. The Fed doesn't, and then this is, now we're in a whole nother level of intensity of there being efforts to politicize the Fed. I think that the Fed's highly unlikely to do much one way or the other that could be 
perceived as political intervention, either tightening or even loosening in a way that might look like it's trying to hurt or help a particular candidate. Um, that said, I think the Fed does, on, I'm very critical of a lot of what they've done, but I'm not critical of their motives. I do think that they view their job as to kind of uh, achieve some sort of economic management around their dual mandate. Um, I think it's an ambitious mandate, frankly, but the reality is in an election year, they're probably going to be uh, taking the path of least resistance. Are you at all afraid of deflation or? Of course I am. Anyone who's an economist who's not afraid of deflation hasn't been paying attention. Um, you have to be. And, and then now we get to go past like one week or two week headlines. You talk about the long term multi generational issues that we face that I think are gonna affect for the rest of my lifetime. That is excessive global indebtedness that is built up over 30 and 40 years that puts downward pressure on yields. It therefore takes away the incentive for capital investment because there's a lower return on invested capital and I think that that then creates a deflationary spiral. I'm very much bought into that belief that that's what we've been living through. No one can deny you've seen downward pressure on yields as the high government debt to GDP ratios have skyrocketed in Japan, in UK, in the European Union, and in the United States. Deflationary fears are here for a long time to come. And finally, as someone who made the top 100 list, I wonder, do you have any advice for advisors out there as they face these tough conversations with their clients? Well, I, I really believe that our role as advisors is to be that voice of reason with clients. One thing we take very seriously is A, there is an emotional and psychological component to that. You have to be calming and you have to be measured. Clients look to you for that and, and I take that very seriously. But you also have to be competent. It isn't enough just to sort of be an emotional rock, but you need to provide them found intellectual uh, footing in terms of what's being done on behalf of their portfolio. So in, in our mind, I think a, a huge moral and professional burden we have is to be an emotional and coherent voice for them in the way that their financial affairs are governed. Well, David, always a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. Thank you for tuning in to Meet the RIA. Be sure to visit AssetTV.com, your source for financial news and information. And check out our other episodes of Meet the RIA. This is Asset TV.